tonight find you well and that you are joining me in wellness right before the Christmas holiday. Um, thank you for joining Late Night with White. I'm your host, C.D. White. And of course, that was Blind Willie McTell. The song is Old Time Religion, which I thought would be an appropriate intro to one of America's great men of letters, William Faulkner. I've wanted to cover Faulkner for quite a while, um, but just, you know, had to take the time to do the research, to come out of my own head with it, go back in with it. I, you know, reading him, I think, in middle school or high school with um, his short pieces and then going into college with his longer works, um, and reading them kind of back to back, um, one after another, and not quite linearly, but um, reading enough of his work to really get a grasp of the artist. And, you know, he looms large. I don't think there's any lit head out there who would feel differently. So thank you for joining me tonight. We're going to talk about William Faulkner, if you didn't know. And um, he's great. I He can't be diminished. And I think um, the NobelPrize.org quote said, quote, William Faulkner generally is regarded as one of the most significant American writers of all time. Faulkner wrote 13 novels and many short stories, but started as a poet. With his breakthrough novel, The Sound and the Fury, he began to use stream of consciousness to portray a character's flow of inner thoughts. His books often are told from the point of view of several characters and contain accurately rendered colloquialisms combined with long sentences full of imagery and language that is sometimes surreal, end quote. And in reading that quote by the Nobel Prize organization, it succinctly wraps up a lot of Faulkner. He wasn't the first to use stream of consciousness, but he used it in a way that, you know, promoted storytelling that was somehow more organic than what had come before. Artists before had, um, of course, wrestled with the human mind and the human language. But I think Faulkner got to its broken, synaptic, um, quippy essence basically to the way we think in a way that hadn't been done before, that hadn't been explored perhaps as fully as Faulkner explored it. So this blurb tells us enough about Faulkner for those of us who've read him to nod in agreement. I mean, like Morrison, Faulkner is no easy read and you you can't get down with him in, in an hour or four hours like you, like you can um, the typical you know, short book. 
His works require a lot of effort on the part of the most stalwart reader, precisely because of the play with language. And I don't want to get too Heideggerian here, but, you know, this idea of the poet, the writer, creating reality by making play with language is not lost on me when we talk about Faulkner, when we talk about Morrison, when you talk about Stephen King, any great artist in their craft is making play with the craft itself, with the workmanship itself, with the tools, with the materials itself. That's what makes them great. Um, and, you know, Faulkner doesn't play by the rules of literature. He's challenging what were, and for most still are, long-held values, rebukes for which any new writer would find themselves on a defensive, but which Faulkner does without chagrin or apology. So he's owning this. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, George Carroll Oates. I'm thinking about Butler, who owe him a small debt, right? Because it is Faulkner who... Mm, I guess in a Christian ethos type of way, tears the veil. He tears the veil between that high, uh, that high art and the low art, but the writer's intentionality with the art is what he really rips asunder. And you look, Faulkner is a curious case. He doesn't really have a pedigree in literature. He's undereducated by many standards, having never finished high school, in many ways having only attended college but never earning a degree. He was a man of small stature and part of the old South. And we have to remember that the South lost. <laughs> I know that's hard for us to really reckon with, but what did that loss mean for the Southern families, those old vanguard families who were now um, having to remake and rebuild themselves. And I think that when we get into it later, Sutpen of Absalom, Absalom um, in many ways, is an answer to this. I think Faulkner would argue there is no rebuilding. It wasn't good to start with. But with, even with all this, um, I guess, doubts of his pedigree, he went on to win the 1949 Nobel Prize and the Pulitzer in 54 for his contribution to literature. But still, he was a womanizer, a bragger, a drinker, sexist, and look, racist. But his work looms larger than a man who at times is all too human. And we see this in literature that the work, the art, the craft overcomes the narrowness of the creator, right? It becomes more than the creator. But Faulkner, I fear, is being relegated to the past and he, he's not taught as often as I feel he should be. As the American mind of letters becomes consumed in petty trials and new authors like Franzen and Updike and Wolf, his legacy is kind of faded. And sure, there's an arc there from Faulkner to Morrison. Um, you know, and in between there's, you know, Gosh, Dove and and Walker and you know Franzen and all these you know Oates, all these great artists. But I fear us losing Faulkner. I fear us letting him slip away. 
And, you know, where he once was a staple of the high school, you know, literature classroom with the shorter pieces, even there he's faced some erasure as the study of literature falls from favor and the approach is that students don't want to read and therefore give them a project, take, you know, take six weeks on Shakespeare and do a run through American Lit, but don't tarry too long. I want us to stop and breathe in Faulkner. Because he's so pivotal and everything that comes after, you know, O'Connor and um, Welty and, you know, uh, you know, he's 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 co-tangent with Seinbeck, uh, another great mind coming out of a very similar period. But we have to, if we're going to continue American literature and American craft, we have to give everyone their due. We have to pause and allow the classroom to assume these these great writers and consume them. Um, this idea of put shelving, I guess, these great artists is very concerning to me as a lit head. And I think the younger kids are when they're supposed to get literature, the more likely they are to continue with good literature, with the highest art. And with, you know, the common consumable art as well. At the end of her speech, and I'm going to butcher this county's name, at the Yakupanata Conference, Morrison addressed her complicated relationship to Faulkner. We're talking about Toni Morrison here. She says, quote, There was for me not only an academic interest in Faulkner, but in a very, very personal way, in a very personal way as a reader, William Faulkner had an enormous effect on me, an enormous effect. And of course, there are some problems with acknowledgement, but look, we all have fathers in literature, and they don't all have the same kin and skin. And so, according to critic Mary Allen Snodgrass, Faulkner is undoubtedly the father of Southern lit. And we have to then acknowledge that most of American lit has Southern roots going back to Poe. This is why it's so important, because Southern lit is American lit. These men, Poe, uh, Faulkner, they're in the American canon, but they also are quintessentially the American canon. You know, you have the Hawthorns and, you know, those great New England authors, but we'd be remiss not to include Poe and Faulkner and, of course, Wright and uh, Hughes and all this great talent coming after. Indeed, we found it easy to compare and contrast Morrison and Faulkner, but that's not our purpose here. I, I, I love Morrison, but I only mention her to show the large shadow cost, you know, cast by Faulkner on American Lit, that even someone is great and is talented and is versed and is dense and is uh, goat as Morrison has acknowledged the wellspring of her source, and it's Faulkner. And of course, Faulkner is standing on the shoulders of Poe and Joyce and psychologists like James and others, um, Virginia Woolf, and even Zorna Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God have an element, a stream of consciousness used by Faulkner. Now, of course, we all know, lit heads, that there is no real first in human history. Um, some people get noted some people are doing the thing, same thing simultaneously but aren't but uh faulkner made definite use of the technique to allow him greater authorial omniscience 
And much like fantasy and sci-fi, he focused on world building with that famous county. But where does a lit head start with Faulkner? You know, um, where do you begin? Where do we begin with his body of works? And to me, the most sensible place to start is with his short and often anthologized short story, A Rose for Emily, in 1930. This short piece explores the same themes and ideas that Faulkner works with his entire career, namely Southern honor and values, wrestling with the present, past, uh, race, and white Southern women who in many ways are rebuked and ridiculed. Um, Like its ending suggests in the short story, the South is sleeping with the dead and leaving everything else, good name, property, history, and even self behind in the process. The longer the South takes to reconcile with itself, its ownership of other human beings, its denigration of other human beings, its uplifting of one human over another, as long as we, we, we continue to grapple with that, the South is being left behind and it's dying. In the end, the South and Miss Emily are mocked and they're quiet as it's kept secrets exposed and made known. Because the truth of the matter is, um, the history is heinous as slavery. It's an open sore. It's an open wound. As much as we try to pack it and codify it and add honor and dignity to it, it's still slavery. Money made from slaves. The impact of slaves on on blacks and then on whites. And Morrison kind of takes up this mantle that Faulkner had put out that, you know, racism isn't just bad for blacks. I really wish we could get beyond that. It's bad for white folks too. It's morally damaging to whites as well. And I think Faulkner really attests to it by his own life by its own circumstances, but in his literature. And I think, in a sense, Faulkner is resentful of the Old South, and yet yearning and pining for it, kind of like the sun in everything that rises must converge. We must remember Faulkner is a child of the South whose people fought in the Civil War, born in 1897. So just as some of the sharpest pangs of the war are ending. But, you know, his grandfather, who was a colonel, he himself, um, you know, was taught this kind of chivalrous, false Southern honor, um, raised by a black nanny, um, not very kind to white women, except for his granny. Um, and that could be a result of his early experience with lost love when the woman he wanted, uh, found somebody else because her family found him lacking. He joined the Royal Air Force. And of course, as I said before, he never finished a formal education, but was well-read. And I want to just pause here and say, to be well-read is to be educated. To be well-read is to be educated. I have met, and lit heads, you have met, people who have degrees, right? Gosh, a plethora of of letters behind their names but who are not well educated because they're not well read 
And we all have met, we let his know, people who are well-read, who's exuding of intelligence and uh, ethics and ethos and pathos and logos is beyond the pale and are well-read. So I like to differentiate, I guess, between education for education's sake and the humanities education, which is to work out your faith basically with fear and trembling. And I know I'm exalting the the lit head here, but there's something to be said about someone who reads that cannot be said about any other group of educated people. There's something distinctly different. And so Faulkner was that that distinctly different educated person, not in terms of uh, a purposeful education of achieving those letters like some of us have, but of reading and reading well and, and, and studying and gaining knowledge from what he read in terms of structure, of craftsmanship, and of art. There, I said it. And so it is said that in the 30s and 40s, Faulkner produced his best works. Faulkner counted The Sound and the Fury as his best or most loved work, saying that it was, quote, the one I worked at the longest, the hardest, that was to me the the most passionate and moving idea and made the most splendid failure. That's the one, that's my, I consider the best and not, well, best is the wrong word. That's the one I love the most, end quote. So here he's saying that the book that came with all of its challenges, and if you read The Sound and the Fury, you know this, is the one that he loved most. And true, this book was not immediately successful, um, but it gained in popularity. It deals with all things Faulkner, and I'm just now realizing that there is a certain fascination in his works with female purity and male bravery. And when I say just realizing, I mean... I'm just not realizing the depths um, that he goes through to study these two things. And I think some of it comes out of his natural innate antagonism to white women that I'm just now discovering and his elevation of the white man. So, of course, these two ideals are in conflict. Elevation of one, um, I don't want to use the word denigrate, but there's a slight denigration there of the of the white female. These things are found in all of his works and permeate perhaps Faulkner's own life in terms of his relationships with men and the women in his life. He uses Benji not as an idiot, but as a kind of magical person who's able to get to the heart of the matter in a pure and even divine sense. So mm, Faulkner would not like this. Most of you would not like this, but a magical, I'm not going to say Negro, but a magical person. The person in the text who's allowed to speak openly and plainly and tell the truth while delivering the magic. Because they don't know if that's what they're doing. So, often in Southern Lit, intellectually challenged people are really superhuman in their understanding, their innocence, and their sacrifice. You know, and Stephen King kind of does this with John Coffey in uh, The Green Mile. Um, their innocence, their purity, their 
understanding of evil, but they're not really understanding and the price they pay when they confront the evil of our world. And you see this also in O'Connor and even Morrison, who has a murdered child returned as an infant for much of beloved, um, even though in an adult body, right? A life that was cut short, coming back as a child in an adult body, speaking truth and wisdom and magic to the tragedy of her own death and its impact on African-Americans. But the book that I like best, so we, so we have Sound and Fury, we definitely have A Rose for Emily, but the book that I like best if, as a primer, if you're going to, you know, dive into Faulkner is Absalom, Absalom. And I've said this anytime I can say it. It's one of my favorites. As a reader, it relates the mythic death of the South. We start with Subpin realizing there's no more to whiteness than whiteness. And I think a lot of people have to discover that. That the skin I'm in is just the skin I'm in. Doesn't confer anything innately or inherently. It's all constructed. And those constructs can be torn down and torn asunder. And so we talked about this in the podcast on word rehabbing when we discussed the label poor white trash. Um, and, you know, um, what they call them? something goats and you know these derogatory terms for poor whites um and you know what's up in the character is a young teen and forced to use the back door use a reserve for slaves or you know lowborn he sets on a journey to whiteness he's a white boy who decides i'm going to be white in his way however are black and brown bodies his own origin which is poor white Indeed, he is killed by Wash Jones, a poor white, one who never changes in all of his iteration in the work of Faulkner. Wash Jones is poor white, proud, and ends violently resisting authority. So, one could argue that Faulkner is saying that the only true white, as represented by Faulkner, is the low-born low caste white that everything else the chivalrous you know colonels the southern ladies is all constructed and false i think you could write a paper on that so Sutpin, in seeking to be aristocratic is undone the white man's proclivity for lordship, sexual conquest, denigration, and double standards are all laid bare and lead to his downfall. No generation is free from the taint as seen in Quentin and Shreve, Clyde and Henry Bond, the firstborn of whiteness. The disease of humanity lies in cowardice. Sutpen simply leaving his wife and firstborn, you know, creating this false history. Um, believing he can simply leave the past behind without consequences and repeating the same old mistakes with lust and lust for power. What Sutpen ignores and what causes his demise is the rooted, basic, poor white with his immutable pride of place that is beyond his aristocracy in place. 
So, once again, as I said earlier, Wash Jones is the whitest character in the book. And I think it also can be argued that even a black, you know, even a man with black blood can ascribe to whiteness and will do all the acts that Sutpin does to have it. And that's Charles Bond, of course, who is very much like his father, setting up a dynasty on the bones of want alone for all comes to nothing. In the end, in Absalom, Absalom, the South is self-loathing. For how can, you know, love grow in roots that are sold by slavery and inhumanity and false constructs, which the Southern chivalry and aristocracy built on the back of, you know, slaves is. And of course, there's the dreadful fear of miscegenation where we all have black blood. And so we think about we come full circle into our present. And some of these same conversations we're having, the quips about, um, you know, what was Archie's skin color going to be? Passing still, whiteness still, uh, reparations still, HBCUs, legacies, affirmative action still. We have not conquered the past. And, you know, and I must reiterate that Faulkner knew history well-read, well-educated. His famous quip that the past isn't dead makes sense as he breathes life into his works. Perhaps in most ways, white writers are reckoning with slavery as much as any writer of color, you know, would either with denial or explanation. Either they're working with denial or explanation. And in some ways, so are black authors. Um, denial? What was the denial? How can I explain it? The humanity denied? How can I explain how human I am? Right? These dichotomies that are forced by um, the impact of, of colonizer behavior, of um, white supremacy and all these things, right? So I would also recommend if you're going to read Faulkner, and I, of course, I'm doing this podcast with the hope that you will, are his letters and bi- you know and biographies written about him. I'm not inclined to biographies, most of you guys know, but um, I think that when we read about Faulkner's past, we really do get an idea and an understanding of his works and his talent and his efforts more clearly. And that's true about any artist. When you know their background, their history, their sufferings, their musings, their thoughts, you get a better idea of the final op- you know, output of their art. And so I found W. Ralph Eubanks on the connect his his text on the connection between Faulkner's fiction, his longtime home, and the University of Mississippi, an interesting read. In some of his letters about civil rights, Faulkner urged patience and slow going. And of course, for me as a as a as a um, a progressive, you know, I found this kind of off putting. But I had to also put it within his time of the sixties and 
you know, a dude coming out of 1897, right? Doesn't make it right, doesn't excuse it, but it helps explain it, I guess. Um, this this, this kind of paternal view of blacks as needing weaning into freedom is old and it's kind of sickening. They're not ready for it yet. We got to give them to them in, in slow pieces. Um, it assumes a lot on the um, consciousness of the white person that they were somehow good arbitrators of citizenship and morality and, um, and being in a country where they held slaves in the most brutal way possible. Um, and I don't think that Faulkner, with the intellect that he had and being well-read, um, was being quite honest in some of those words. I think he was placating to a South that was listening to him and he was straddling the fence because I don't think in his heart of hearts and reading his works that he really stood on the side of, um, you know, or George Wallace or um, a slave owner. He doesn't give enough evidence to support that one. And two, his literature doesn't support it. Everything he wrote doesn't support that conclusion. And so it's sadly him um, placating to um, the worst of the South. And perhaps being undone by the positioning. Given his background, given his lack of formal education, and being given this onerous task of explaining the white South that he fails in a way that is inexplicable, but yet makes perfect sense because he's trying to talk to a people who, and he knows this, are Sutpin like or, or um, Walsh, you know, Walsh Jones like. They are the whitest people on the planet. And so I think Faulkner, like a lot of great thinkers, like, you know, a lot of great, um, could have been great men of his time, fails to make that real push and leap to humanity by encouraging whites to really embrace the redemptive arc of the civil rights movement, of, of um, lessening white supremacy, of taking ownership of their past, um, and is in part why we're still probably grappling with it. Um, I don't think he saw himself as a friend of the Negro. I don't want to go that far. I think some of his writings are very harsh and, um, you know, white man on the mountain in terms of dealing with uh, black folks, the slaves in his works. Um, but then there are real shining moments like in Dry September when he's getting to the heart of the fallacy of even lynchings and uh, white female rape by the Negro. Faulkner touches on those things and he doesn't really pull his punch because in literature you don't have to. Because the person to whom you're speaking is well-read and seeking education. 
Whereas when you're writing as a man of the people, when you're pontificating about social ills and social morals and ethics, you're not you're not um, speaking to a well-read, well-educated audience. And that's where Faulkner, to me, loses ground. And so do a lot of us. So do a lot of people. Um, it's hard to talk to the masses or even for the masses or be asked to speak to the masses. Um, the way that MLK is simplified and martyred again and again and again because people won't recognize that he was murdered and that he was very leftist and very progressive and was very much seeking to dismantle white supremacy in America. And had he not been murdered, maybe would have taken that aim significantly further than um, his martyrdom did. So, um, even with all of Faulkner's problematics, right? Um, I don't like thinking of people as being, oh, he's just a man of his time because that negates the good, the actual good person of that time, right? Um, if we give um, all men the same pass, then a man who's intentionally being good and doing good his good works are dwindled and made into nothing. So I don't want to um, do that with Faulkner. But I do think that still in 2023, a few scant days from 2024, he's worth reading. He's worth understanding. And that a lit head who grapples with Faulkner is going to be all the more well-educated all the more well-educated. Don't skip, don't skip on Faulkner. Go back and you're going to start with A Rose for Emily. Then you're going to go to his seminal work, or one of his seminal works, Sound and the Fury. Then you're going to go to Absalom, Absalom, and you're going to eat all the little sweet meats in between. A Light in August, Wild Palms. He's got some good work out there. Um, and a lot of it follows the same family from the same um, county, but they crisscross America. And um, I just don't want good literature to be lost. I'm more frightened of that than I am the banning. Maybe if someone would ban Faulkner, we would actually get more of him read. So I want to thank you for joining me tonight. I know that the gaps between the incel podcast in September and this one in December was quite long. It was also quite unintentional. You know, life happens. And I got really busy with a lot of things. And guys, um, we are still living in very interesting times with Hamas and Israel, Ukraine, the things that are happening in the Congo and Sudan, you know, in Ethiopia, Somalia, um, the migrant crisis at our own borders, um, the recent killings, you know, in Prague. We live in times that, you know, I could just hear that famous quote, these are the times that try men's souls. And lit heads, we are not um, unaffected by it. We live in this world.
we wrestle with the things of this world. So I want to thank you for hanging with me. Season 4 is on the way. And I've got more pods coming. Um, we do we do have a great lineup um, approaching. And so this has been Late Night with White. Once again, I'm your host, C.D. White. Have a good night.